Money and Me on Your Money, only on Money FM 89.3. We're reading a great new book today. Esquire named him one of the 75 most influential people of the 21st century. He's a global strategy advisor, author of several bestsellers, including Connectography, Mapping the Future of Global Civilization, back in 2016. His books have been translated into more than 20 languages. And today we're talking about a new book that looks at how global events are leading to a new age of migration, one that he says will scatter both the dispossessed and the well-off. The question is, which areas will people abandon? Where could most of us be looking to resettle? Where will you live in 2030? Intriguing questions. Let's find out with the author of a new book, Move, Parag Khanna. Good morning, Parag. Good morning. Great to be with you again. Likewise. Parag, help us understand, are we in a new age of mass migration one year into global lockdowns? It's such an ironic point in time, isn't it, to be exploring the future of migration, given that we have just been through and still are in, in many ways, the single most coordinated act in all of human history, which happens to be a total lockdown. So the question I'm asking is, what comes next? Because Mm. right up until uh, January 2020, in other words, the year 2019 marked an absolute record in the number of people who had crossed borders. 1.5 billion people crossed a border in 2019. Nearly 300 million people were living outside of their country of origin. And of course, in the last year and a half, millions of people went back. They went home from wherever they were to wherever they are from. The question, though, is what comes next? And the way you answer it is by looking at the drivers of human migration and mobility and movement. So you have labor imbalances and labor shortages. We have them here in Singapore. They're all over the world, especially in aging countries. You have political upheavals. Look at Afghanistan, Syria, Venezuela, and all the places where states are failing and people flee. You have economic migration, which accounts for most migration of the last 150 years, which is, of course, people just seeking a better life in other countries. And let's not forget climate change. And of course, you don't get to pick your crisis. You don't get to say this year I'll deal with COVID, next year I'll deal with climate change, then the year after I'll deal with uh, Afghanistan, right? All of these things are slamming us at the same time. And more and more people are becoming climate migrants and climate refugees. So, yes, it's an ironic moment to be exploring the future of mass migration, but every single force in history that drives people to move is actually operating in overdrive right now. So in other words, in economic terms, there's like a big pent up demand for people to resettle. And I think that is what is going to happen starting literally this year. Throughout history, people have moved from one place to another. This question of migration is something that you've actually been following since 2010. Is that right? Oh, I've been following this question my entire life. (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm a migrant by by nature, by birth, by descent. Uh, My life story has, of course, brought me here to Singapore. Uh, So this has always been intimately of interest to me. But I'll tell you, this is actually a book about geography. It's a Mm. book about human geography, which is the subject closest to my heart. All of my books have fundamentally been about geography in some way, but I hadn't written a book about human geography, which is simply a way of saying the distribution of the human species on the planet. Why are we where we are? And what comes next? Where will we be? How did we get there? And I wanted to answer this simple question. Where will you live in 2030, 2040, and 2050? Mm. And then reverse engineer from then, from the present, 
or so rather, from the future to the present, reverse engineer why we will be where we will be, and to answer that question. People often move uh, in search for a better future. What do the new migration patterns mean for the chase for the American dream? Well, it's interesting. Ever since just before the financial crisis of 2008, I want to emphasize before the financial crisis, you've had a, uh, or, or, and especially since then, you had a doubling of the number of Americans who leave America, actually. At the same time, the number of, of total global migrants in the world America used to absorb an equivalent number to every other country put together. That gap has now dropped to zero. So America is no longer really as as sort of one single state dominating the inflow or uptake of the world's best and brightest and young talent and eager people. In other words, it's distributed. America gets about five, six hundred thousand a year. Canada is taking about 400,000 a year. And remember that Canada is a big country, but it only has one-tenth the population of America. So Canada is really pulling its weight. Germany is pulling its weight. I think it'll be interesting for Singaporeans to know that Britain, after Brexit, right, five years after Brexit, it is easier today to migrate to the United Kingdom than it was before Brexit. So you might ask yourself, what was Brexit for then, right? Mm. Because today you could just go online, and if you pretty much have a pulse, the UK will let you in. Because they realize that they're facing these labor shortages and talent shortages and that Brexit was really dumb. And so, you know, the conclusion I come to is that we should allow supply and demand to dictate migration and mobility. The world will be enriched as a result and far more people will be able to lead a better life. How could resettling patterns reshape Southeast Asia, Singapore specifically? Well, Southeast Asia is one of the most intense regions of internal migration in the world, alongside Western Europe and within Africa and, of course, uh, Latin America to the United States and so forth, because uh, largely driven by the large number of Indonesian diaspora, especially construction workers and farmers and so forth in the Malaysian Peninsula and elsewhere. Singapore is obviously the talent magnet for the region. But, you know, for the last 10 plus years, we've been very cautious about the the, the volume and the number and the country of origin and the, um, you know, sectors of professions represented by people coming in. And of course, now it's, uh, you know, the population last year um, actually declined a little bit. I think that we'll find the right medium, right? You know, we'll, we'll, we will face labor shortages in key areas. We will seek to raise productivity, but we also need uh, you know, young blood, young taxpayers, workers, entrepreneurs, um, you know, teachers, uh, helpers and maids, construction workers all across the economy, because we are a very diversified economy. We do need people, right? And I, I think that that eventually things will loosen up, but they'll also be controlled in the sense that it's going to remain targeted as it should be, which is to say, pick the right people for the right sector at the right time. And one of the things that's happened, by the way, during over the last couple of years, and other countries have done this too, is to have far more different tiers of migration, right? So now suddenly there's an entrepreneur pass and a, and a tech pass and this pass and that pass. And that's a very good thing. And it's quite transparent for people around the world who are looking to migrate to Singapore, what category you might fit into, how to apply and so forth. And so that flexibility is also emerging and that's a good uh, role model for other countries as well. 
given your projections for what the future of migration, migratory patterns could look like, what does your book offer in terms of what policymakers need to keep in mind moving ahead? Crucial information for them, perhaps. Well, the number one thing is, again, supply and demand, right? You are artificially hampering your own economy if you are not taking in the people that you need. And again, that's what Brexit uh, taught the UK. That's what Trump taught the United States and so forth. Countries like Germany that have absorbed you know, tens of thousands of refugees and asylum seekers have trained them, reskilled them, brought them into the economy. And even though they're a rapidly aging country as well, they've expanded their workforce, right, and boosted their exports because they've actually made the most of all the people who want to come to Germany. And I think that that is a great lesson. So supply and demand is the number one thing. The other is, of course, assimilation, mm-hmm. right? A lot of countries say that they have a migration problem. That is not true. What they have is an an assimilation problem. And we can devote, every country can devote, and we can here too, more resources towards integrating into the civic culture, the civic identity of Singapore, whether it's uh, speaking fluent English, whether it's having the right skills for the right job, various things that we can do to ensure that the next million people who move here in the course of the next 10, 15, 20 years, whatever time horizon, that they, wherever they come from, welcome but they a lot of resources can be committed towards uh, you know helping them feel like and become true proud Singaporeans what does your book say about future migration patterns and quality of life I mean are the choices of the dispossessed and the wealthy going to be very different well in many ways it's quite similar because what's so remarkable is that what you you have a situation where no one can escape climate change some of the richest people on earth have their mansions burned down in forest fires in California and in the south of France uh, all in the last uh, couple of years and of course the poor of uh, you know the, the eastern africa and south asia are also losing their livelihoods in drought so, you know, billions of people could become climate migrants. And this is not a hyperbolic uh, forecast. If you look at the NASA and other sources, the IPCC climate research, it shows that a couple of billion people will no longer live in the optimal latitudes that are known as the climate niche, the comfortable latitudes that we have thrived in for more than 10,000 years since the last ice age. So it's not a, uh, you know, exaggeration to say that billions of people may be forced to move, and that includes many wealthy people and many poor people at the same time. But of course, far more, it affects the poor of the world. And And what I do is to forecast the new geographies of migration. We have not seen in recent, in the past century, um, you know, millions of South Asians and, and East Asians and Central Asians and, 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 uh, and so forth migrating to Europe or, or to Russia. But we might start to see that because those are far more habitable geographies. I call them climate oases. So what I do in the book is kind of go around the world to all of these so-called climate oases, the sort of places where even though climate change is terrible, um, in so many ways, in so many geographies, there are places that are, of course, somewhat more resilient. Can you give us a sense of these oases that are shaping up? I'd like to, you know, start booking my ticket there. You can do some recce on uh, your real estate portfolio, <laughs> yes. yes. Um, you know, it's uh, something that I work on rather intensively. In uh, Again, this is the environment, the caveat is the environment is a complex system, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, no place, if you think about it, there have been forest fires in Siberia, and Canada, even Greenland has forest fires, Right. So, and the other caveat is if lots of people go and move to, to Stockholm, Sweden, Stockholm is not going to be the placid, perfect place that you may think it is. And so people may wind up moving again. 
So we really have to take a complexity approach to this. But again, on a relative basis, much of Canada, much of Northern Europe, the British Isles, uh, you know, parts of Western Russia, Japan, which is, of course, a place many Singaporeans are familiar with. These are among the climate oases. But even some off the kind of off the beaten track places, I profile uh, Kazakhstan and the Caucasus region, the countries like uh, Azerbaijan and Georgia. And of course, I also talk about, uh, you know, and I think uh, your listeners will appreciate the, the play on words, air-conditioned nations, mm. right? Places that are using uh, the technology of air conditioning, which, of course, uh, you know, we are, we are intimately familiar with here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not the only ones who are coping with climate change through not only, of course, you know, intensive deployment of air conditioning, which we already have, but also looking at how to do it in a way that does not itself, ironically, exacerbate climate change. Good point. And great book, Air Conditioned Nation by Cherry and George, by the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Does your book, Parag, share a a projection of where young people, the youth of the world, are increasingly heading to? This is a great question. Um, And indeed, it's probably the second biggest theme in the book is really the war for young talent, because we are in this incredible inflection point demographically that we've really never faced before, where the world population is headed into a plateau and a gradual decline, or perhaps a sudden decline, depending on how we handle climate and other factors. And because young people today are not having children or far fewer children, uh, the winners and losers of the 21st century, quite simply, will be the countries that attract the young talent of the world. Mm -hmm. So the war for young talent is a major operational theme for me. And I look at whether which countries are doing the best job of providing affordable housing and, uh, you know, good affordable education and, uh, you know, sort of culturally liberal cultural environment and all of the other things that young people are looking for. And I'm looking at, you know, so I examine country by country, which places are doing the best job of creating those conditions so that young people will uh, will sort of flock there. And though that is a demographic fact, no matter how technologically productive your economy becomes, you need young people, you need the right demographic balance. And so we and every other country should be vigorously competing for the world's millennials and Generation Z. In terms of the winners and losers that you mentioned, how is the geographic map of opportunity shaping up? Well, here's something interesting. Asia has half or more than half of the world's young people. Mm. So that's, again, a demographic fact, right? There's more than 2 billion young people here in Asia. So if we do well by the young of Asia today, you know, and, and maintain a stable environment for them, or at least adapt to climate change well, and ensure that they have education and job opportunities and so forth, Asia will continue to thrive. If we mismanage our climate and our demographics and our politics, then, of course, the great Asian story uh, could certainly be derailed rather significantly. So, you know, here we need to obviously focus close to home, so to speak, in this region on how we balance that. But other regions, and, and I think that this is the part of the turning point that people don't really expect, mm. when we talk about Western politics, we tend to think of it as being dominated by xenophobia and populism and so on. Yep. The truth is that, again, as the cases of uh, Canada and Britain and even now uh, the U.S. under the Biden administration demonstrate, in fact, they are participating actively in this war for talent. And you can see the turnaround in the Biden administration with the H-1B visa policy expansion, uh, record number 
number of Chinese students have been granted visas to return to or go to the U.S. for the first time. As I said, Canada is taking in as many uh, you know young people as the United States is right now, and so on and so on. So I think that actually the same countries that we tend to identify with as being um, you know insular or you know, turning inward, the truth is they're not. They're turning outward because supply and demand is hitting. The populations are aging. They know they need young people as the taxpayers, caregivers, construction workers, entrepreneurs, and so on and so forth. So this war for young talent is not some future hypothesis. It's already begun. Parag, I, I want to bring home the spirit of this book to our listeners. You were born in India, raised in UAE, USA, Germany. I have traveled to more than 150 countries, have a PhD from the LSE. Where will you live in 2030? I'd like to think I'll still be here in Singapore. <laughs> uh, I didn't choose Singapore by accident, as you cited, I've been to pretty much every single place in the whole world. You know, I, I'm here because I love Singapore. I'm here voluntarily. I'm here because I trust that we are far-sighted and capable of adapting to these challenges, even as an equatorial country that's a coastal country. And remember, it's not all about climate. I mean, it's very important that we have the fiscal resources and the strategy to adapt to climate change. Everything we're doing from, you know, coastal barriers to raising roads uh, to, uh, you know, the cooling Singapore project, which if those of you don't know about it, you know, go and see what they're doing at NUS uh, and elsewhere. I, I do believe that all of these things will work, uh, you know, even under perhaps perhaps more complex climate circumstances. Of course, the things we're doing with water, with agriculture, it's, it's incredible, the inventiveness. And Singapore, I think, is therefore very secure and uh, you know, very proud of the foresight and the execution. So you know, I'm, I'm proud to be here. I, I hope that others appreciate you know, the great work that the civil service and the technologists are, are committing. And it gives me confidence that everyone who's lucky enough and fortunate enough to be here should certainly want to still be here in 2030 and beyond. Well said. And congratulations on a great book, Parag. Thank you for taking us through it. Thank you so much. He's Parag Khanna, founder and managing partner of Future Map. That's a global strategic advisory firm and author of the book that we're reading today. It's really terrific. Pick it up. It's called Move. Author's name again, Parag Khanna. Thanks for joining us here on Money FM, Singapore's most influential radio station. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.